Welcome back. Tonight we'll be in Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, paragraphs 4 through 6. Last week we started our study of this first chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith of Holy Scripture. And we we answered the question, and we'll, we'll raise it again and answer it again, why is it that the Westminster Divines felt the need to begin the confession with the doctrine of Scripture? So many other confessions, the Augsburg Confession, the Belgic Confession, the Helvetic Confession, etc. and so forth, the 39 Articles of the Church of England, upon which the Westminster Confession of Faith was originally to be based, all of them begin with the doctrine of God. Why is it that the Westminster Standards began with the doctrine of Scripture? It began with the doctrine of Scripture because the Scripture is what everything else they have to say will be derived from. We as a church do not believe or hold to a single view or distinctive simply because it's found in the Westminster Standards. We hold our views and distinctives because we believe them to be biblical. The Westminster Assembly was was not called for the purpose of establishing doctrine or really even solving any theological conundrum of the day. Historically speaking, that's, that's why these sorts of assemblies are traditionally called. For example, the Council of Nicaea was called in 325 to address the false teaching of Arianism, that Jesus was not fully God. Or the Council of Constantinople in 381 was, was called to address other uh, heresies attacking the deity of Christ. Heresies like Apollinarianism that would say that he was not fully human. Rather, that he was very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. That is the, that is the idea, that he is fully God, he is fully human, as the Nicene Creed would go on to say. Or, the Synod of Dort was called again to respond to theological error in 1618, to respond to Arminianism. And on we could go with these kinds of examples. The Westminster Assembly, Assembly was not called to address theological error. Rather, they were called to state in the clearest way possible what they believe the Bible teaches. And so we believe these things because we believe the Westminster Confession of Faith to be the most helpful, the most faithful summary of what the Scripture teaches on any of the given 33 chapters that it covers. And they start first and foremost with saying, what does the Bible say about the Bible? What does Scripture say about Revelation? We know, uh, having followed the Confession and reading the Scriptures, that the Scripture lays out for us two types of Revelation, two big overarching, overarching categories. There is general Revelation and special Revelation. And you can see these together... If you look in in Psalm uh, 19, it will speak of the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. That is to say, the very created order itself, the fact that we live in a created world, is a form of revelation. And we call this general revelation because it tells us general truths about God. It tells us general truths about who the Creator is. Namely, that He exists. 
Uh, Paul would say in Romans chapter 1, I believe it's verse 20, that the creation bears witness to his eternal power and divine nature. It gives us general truths. But Psalm 19 goes on and says in verse 7, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And on it would go. And so that would be an example of special revelation and that it reveals distinctive specific things about god namely we saw there his commandment is pure that is his law his law reveals his character so those are our two big categories of revelation general revelation which is general both in terms of what it reveals and who it is revealed to everybody gets access to general revelation but Special revelation is special in what it reveals and also special in who it is revealed to. The Bible says the natural man cannot understand the things of God for they are spiritually discerned. And so tonight and for the rest of the chapter we'll be focused on this special revelation. And we'll, we'll be looking tonight then at two things from these three paragraphs of the confession. We will focus on uh, the the authority of special revelation in paragraphs 4 and 5. <clears throat> and then on the scope of special revelation in paragraph 6. First of all, the authority of Scripture. The, the authority of Scripture is that it is inerrant and infallible. You'll often hear both myself and Dr. Phillips refer to the inerrant, infallible, life-giving word of God. What, what do these two terms mean? Well, inerrant means that we believe the Bible, as it was originally written, does not contain any errors. There is nothing errant in what the Apostle Paul wrote, or Moses, or anybody in between. It is without error. But we also believe that it is infallible. Now, infallible is, is a deeper level than being without error. There are lots of things that I would say uh, could be without error. I, I, I've got a calendar in front of me, and I look at the dates on the calendar, and I believe that that calendar accurately records the days of the week and the days of the week on which those dates will occur. There, there, are, no, there are no errors on the calendar. Uh, I, I believe the Westminster Standards, too, have not erred in their uh, explanation and summation of, of Scripture. However, Scripture alone has this other attribute of being infallible. That is to say, it is not capable of error. It is not even hypothetically possible that Moses or David or Isaiah or, or Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, that any of them could have made an error when they were writing the very word of God. That is what infallible means. Now the question is, why should we believe that? Why should we believe that the Bible is both inerrant and infallible? Uh, I'll, I'll illustrate it this way. My my kids love to look at Bibles. They're, they're three and five. Neither one of them can really read, but they, they like to look at them. Why is that? Because they believe the Bible's important. Why do they believe the Bible's important? Because their mother and I tell them it is. And because they see us modeling that before them. But... As sweet as that is, and as age-appropriate as that is for young children at three and five to mimic their parents, 
if in 25 years they both still really like to look at their Bibles, because my daddy said so will not be a sufficient reason. Because I was taught to do this in Sunday school will not be a sufficient reason. Why ought we to believe these things to be true about the scriptures? Well, I'll read a couple passages here. First of all, I'll read uh, chapter 1, section 4 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, which says, The authority of Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed and obeyed, dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof, and therefore it is to be received because it is the word of God. In other words, what the Westminster Divines are saying there is the, the, the reason that we take the Bible at face value and having all authority is because of the one whose word it is. The Apostle Paul would say something similar to his Protege Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 10, he writes to Timothy, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra. With persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. So he says, Timothy, you've seen all the things that happened to me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from a child you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation. So, so Paul gives Timothy several reasons so far. He says, you, you know me, you know my example. You know your mother and your grandmother and how they've taught you these things from the time that you were a child. All of that's important. But the bottom line, the reason that we believe the Bible is inerrant and infallible is because of what Paul says in verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and, by, and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. <coughs> the reason that it is important that we believe the Bible is because the Bible is breathed out by God. It is the very word of God. And because, as the confession says, echoing John 14, 6, God does not merely tell the truth, but Jesus said, I am the truth. God is the truth. He is the the being that is necessary for something like truth to exist in the first place. And because he is the truth, therefore, we are obligated to believe his word. Because God is truth, we are obligated to believe his word. Fair enough. But how do we know that the Bible is the word of God? How can we know that? 
Is it not because the church has told us so? This is what the Roman Catholic Church would say. They would say the only reason that you even have a Bible or know the Bible is because we told you so. That's especially what they like to say in response to our doctrine of sola scriptura. And so it's a point that's worth considering. Here's what the Confession says in in chapter 1, section 5, as far as how we know the scriptures. The Confession says, We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to an high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture, and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies, and the entire perfection thereof, are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. So, so, the Westminster Divines there just just ran through uh, at least seven different ways that we can be confident in the Word of God, that we can have high regard for it. And yes, one of them is the testimony of the church, the testimony of the saints that, that went before us. That That's all well and good. Those are all uh, evidences that we can point to to authenticate it. Uh, my, my professor at, at RTS Charlotte, Dr. Michael Kruger, uh, has has put out several uh, books and articles on what he calls the self-authenticating model of Scripture. And I would highly encourage anyone that wants to study this more in depth to look at that, that the Scripture uh, evidences itself to be the Word of God by all of these things, the heavenliness of the matter, the, the efficacy of the doctrine, the fact that it actually changes people's lives, the majesty of the style, the scope of the whole. The fact that the the Bible is 66 books written by over 40 different authors across the span of nearly 2,000 years. There, there's no other explanation for the fact that it has one core central message other than it has been divinely inspired. And all of that may be true. But the bottom line, the reason that we know it's God's word is, as the confession says, yet notwithstanding... Our full persuasion and assurance of the infallibility of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the Word in our hearts. Now, we we don't want to uh, divorce this reason from all the others we've listed. The others that we've listed are, are, are rational. And, and 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 things that we ought to look into but the bottom line is we know the bible is god's word because we are born of god because we belong to him we recognize his voice jesus said my sheep hear my voice and to another they will not listen there is an instinctive way in which we who are born of the Spirit, hear the Spirit testifying to us in our hearts that this is the Word of God. It's it's almost like when there's a, a newborn child in, in the hospital room, and there's, there's a room full of adults. There is not a question, there is not a shred of doubt in that child's mind who their mom and dad are, because they are the child of those parents, they recognize the voice. 
They know who mom and dad are because they hear the voice. Because it's their child. In the same way, the child of God hears God's voice speaking in his word. That is the bottom line. That is the main reason. Now we want to say that we're not blindly believing this. We're not blindly following it. Because there are all these other things that we can look at. It's not a blind faith. But it is nonetheless by faith. So what is the scope of Scripture then? That's its authority. What is the scope of Scripture? Well, the scope of Scripture, in one sense, is limited. On the one hand, it tells us all that we need to believe about God and all the duty that God requires of man. That's true. But it doesn't tell us all that there is to know about everything. Its scope is, as the Confession says, all things necessary for God's glory, man's salvation, faith, and life. And this does go beyond the mere words on the page. These things are not merely able to be proof-texted every single time. But it's either, as the Confession says, expressly set down in Scripture, or by good and necessary consequences may be deduced from Scripture. So we might say that the scope of Scripture's authority is limited, to ter- limited in terms of topics. It doesn't tell you how to drive a car or balance a budget. But it does tell you how to know God. But in the same way, its scope is not limited to merely the words on the page. But it also includes all of the good and necessary consequences of those words on the page. Now, this point of good and necessary consequences is one that causes a lot of our more broadly evangelical friends uh, some apprehension. So let's take a moment to define what we mean, and then defend it as a principle. What what do we mean by the term in the expression good and necessary consequences? Good and necessary consequences are arguments that not only could be true, that might may be inferred from a passage, but good and necessary consequences are arguments that must be true given the validity of the premises. So just one example of what I'm talking about. Uh, Premise one, all PCA ministers must be examined by the Presbytery. Premise two, Dr. Phillips is a PCA minister. Good and necessary consequences says Dr. Phillips must have been examined by the Presbytery. Because A and B are true, C must follow. Uh, another example of this, and where good and necessary consequences is, is helpful polemically, uh, <coughs> the Roman Catholic Church teaches that um, that uh, priests and bishops uh, ought not to be married. And yet, we would say they ought to be, for a number of reasons. But one good example is we would say, well, Peter was married. Now, nowhere in the Bible does it say that Peter had a wife. That verse does not exist. However, we know Peter had a wife from good and necessary consequences because the scripture does say that Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. What's a mother-in-law? The mother of your wife. Therefore, Peter had a wife. That's the kind of basic idea of good and necessary consequences. It's not that everything that is likely to be true from, from inference of the scripture, but rather what 
must be true based on what the scripture says. Um, and this is an important way of understanding doctrines such as the Trinity. There is no verse that I could point to that says God is one being in three persons. That, that passage doesn't exist. However, there are a bunch of places that I could go to to show you that there is one God and only one God. And that there are three persons that are referred to as God. And that those three persons are not one person. And, and so you, you build from good and necessary consequences of the full truth of what the scripture teaches, <clears throat> the doctrine of the Trinity or the two natures of Christ and, and several other key doctrines of the faith depend on the, the sober use of good and necessary consequences. Now, do we have biblical warrant for this kind of argumentation? I'm going to say we do. Well, I'll, I'll show you one, one example from scripture of good and necessary consequences and why they're appropriate to use. The, the short answer is because <clears throat> Jesus used good and necessary consequences and he expected others to. Uh, if you have your Bible, go ahead and flip to Matthew chapter 22. And this is the passage uh, where, where Jesus is, is answering a question from the Sadducees. The Sadducees, of course, uh, deny the resurrection. And they come up with this, this elaborate story of this man who's married and, and he dies. And, and the law says that she's to marry his brother. And she does. And then the brother dies. And then the next brother dies. And on and on and on. And now she's had seven husbands. They're all dead. In the resurrection, whose wife will she then be, they ask. And, and the, the gotcha is supposed to be, if there's a resurrection and she's been married seven times, whose wife will she be? Therefore, Because you can't answer that question, therefore there's no resurrection. And Jesus says to them in verse 29, You are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, so he's now going to get to the, the real heart of the problem, to prove the resurrection of the dead. It's very important that we follow Jesus' logic here. As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? Then he quotes from the book of Exodus, chapter 3. This is the passage of, of Moses and the burning bush that says nothing about resurrection. And yet Jesus infers, he says, have you not read? So he expects them to have read this. And he expects them to have understood that this passage necessitates the resurrection. That's key to get here. Have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So Jesus' logic here is, God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he said this to Moses some 400 years after those men had all died. He did not say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now I will be your God. He says, I am. There's a present tense which necessitates, by good and necessary consequences, that those men are still alive and have hope of the resurrection. And you may say, yeah, well, that was Jesus. Of course he can do that. But as I mentioned earlier, verse 29, he says, 
you are wrong because you don't know the scriptures. He expected the Sadducees to have known this based on what was said by God in the passage about Moses and the burning bush. Now, as we wrap up this section on the scope of scripture, it's important to see that there are some things that we're going to say that, that don't necessarily uh, extend to that, uh, that, excuse me, it's, it's important to see that there are some things we're going to say that don't directly relate to God and his worship. There are some things that we, that we get from Scripture that don't directly relate to God and his worship. But let's, let's go ahead and, and read this final section of the Confession. There are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and the government of the church common to human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general principles of the word which are always to be observed. And so what they're saying there is there are some aspects of your life that the Bible does not explicitly give command on but they should always be regulated by the general principles of the word and use of human conscience and reason. And so, for example, my wife is Bethany, and I love her very dearly. And I did not make the decision, however, to marry Bethany because one day I opened my Bible to Mark eleven eleven and read, He went out unto Bethany. And then I closed my Bible and I opened it back up to Luke uh, 1037 and says, go and do thou likewise. Okay, that, that's not how it happened. The Bible didn't tell me to marry Bethany Matson, But the Bible did give me general principles for what type of woman to look for in a wife. And then using my own uh, conscience and reason, I, I, dis, I inferred, I deciphered that Bethany Matson fit that description and so I married her. The point, then, from this section of Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, could simply put, be put this way. While the scripture does not explicitly answer every single question we may have, it does speak to all circumstances of life, at least by way of principle. And everything to which the scripture speaks, it speaks to with the full, unadulterated authority of God. Let's pray. God in heaven, we do give thanks to you for your word, for its clarity, for its authority, and for the uh, sure rule of faith and practice that it provides. Would you help us to follow it closely, that it might be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, that we might not sin against you, Lord, but that we might know your word and keep it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.